everyone. Welcome to episode 188 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are going to step off right away and talk about some thank yous. Yes, we have a whole bunch of thank yous. Um, We have four new Patreon members. We'd love to thank Faith, Diane, Christine, and Randall. Thank you so much. And then thank you to Kathy, who upgraded her sponsorship level. So she just received or should be receiving a beautiful new red tote bag. Yes. Thank you so much, Kathy. That was greatly appreciated. And we hope you enjoy the bag. Yeah. If you upgrade to the $25 level, you get a tote bag. And we have them in yellow, black, and red. Well, we have a big congratulations to Sandra or Sandra. She was the first person to send us her completed bingo card. Indeed. And she did it with these beautiful calligraphied A's to mark her bingo boxes. Bingo boxes. Yeah. So beautiful. And I emailed her back and said, you know, is that a stamp? Did you you go out and get a (laughs) fancy stamp? And she said, no, I've been practicing my calligraphy. Beautiful. Very lovely. Yes. Well, congratulations, Sandra, and um, those of you who are still working on your bingo cards, we love to see people posting them. And when you've completed your card, please email it to us, bookcougars at gmail.com, and you'll be entered to win the grand prize. We love giving things away. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading Hester by Laura Lico Albanese who will be a guest on our future episode. And Hester is, of course, Hester from Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. I am loving the novel so much. I actually have like 10 pages left in it. And she still showed up at Booker's headquarters. I did. I was like, am I going to be late? I mean, you know, uh, (laughs) but I thought, no, save it, you know, and relish those last 10 pages. So after we record here, I think I'm going to go to a coffee shop and, treat myself to a mocha Mm. and enjoy those last 10 pages. Right on. I'm really liking what she does. So the novel is set in the 1850s because Hawthorne hasn't yet written The Scarlet Letter. He's a character in the novel. Albanese incorporates a lot of things that were going on in history at the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give any spoilers. I know we're going to be talking about this novel a lot more the next time. Yeah, and she also goes, it goes back to Scotland, too, in the 1600s, right, where her grandmother is living. So it does have two different time periods. Very short. Okay, so this is where I bring in a fourth person into the conversation and a second author, because I'm considering Laurie Lico Albanese part of this conversation since, you know, she wrote the book. I am catching up on my magazine reading, and this was an article in Writer's Digest in the January-February 2023 edition or issue, I should say. And it is an article by Sharon Short, aka Jess Montgomery, who we've had on as a guest and we've both enjoyed her series. The title is Interstitial Writing, The Worthy in Between. So it was the novel of hers where a body is found with no identifying anything on it or with it. And she was like, how do I make this person known? How do I build interest without just doing like a big info dump about who this person is or was. And her agent suggested that she try interstitial writing, which is where you put a little something in between chapters or every few chapters. 
And so some of the things she mentions that she used was a newspaper article, an intake form at an institution, postcards, little tiny things. And I read this just, well, since the last time we recorded. So when I was reading Hester, I thought, oh my God, these are little interstitial somethings in here. And yeah, they go back in time to different time periods. And it starts in the 1600s in Scotland when women are being accused of witchcraft there. Yeah, Yeah. so the main character of Hester is a young woman who comes from Scotland to Salem. And she's friends with Nat. As she refers to Nathaniel (laughs) Hawthorne. So as we said, we're not going to talk about it more because this is the next book in our Scarlet Summer. And we're going to be talking in depth about it with Lori Lico Albanese on episode 189. Yeah, I will say that I am listening to the audiobook as well, which is narrated by Saskia Marleveld. And it's really good. I'm going back and forth with the book. Nice. And I just want to say those little interstitial things are really short. They're like a page or two. They're not alternating chapters or anything. I just want to say that because I know some people love that alternating chapter and other people hate it. So it is a tiny bit of both. Yeah, it's kind of just helps with backstory. That's how I see it. So you understand the story more. But I'm also very little into it. So Chris is looking at me like, hmm, you'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm in a witchy phase here for Scarlet Summer. So I'm reading The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches, by Sangu Mandana. And this was a Goodreads Choice Award nominee for Best Fantasy in 2022. And I'm not usually a fantasy reader. But one night I was just searching on my Kindle to see what I had. And I wanted to read something else witchy and came across it. And it's really fun. It's it's feel good. I guess that's the way I would say it. I don't know what fantasy that's similar to like a cozy mystery would be. But that's how I'm feeling. You know, what's a cozy fantasy? I don't know. It's not my genre. (laughs) Tell me people. I don't know. But it's about Mika Moon, who's a loner witch living in Britain. And she's kind of hiding her talents by putting videos on social media that show witchcraft, but she's pretending it's not witchcraft. And someone sees it and reads through the lines. It's like, oh, she's such a witch. Like, she's totally a witch. She's got the gift. And so they reach out to her and beg her to come live with them in their hidden mansion so she can teach their three kids how to be proper witches, because they are all witches. She arrives and there's a librarian in this mansion who's very protective of the kids. But I sense that there might be romance involved with this librarian and with Mika, but I'm not far enough in to know if that's the case. And do fantasies have romance? Often they do, right? I would think so. Yeah. I would think, yeah. So I'm really enjoying it. It's just light and fun. It's kind of a fantasy version of a beach read in my mind, which is what I'm looking for right now in between some of my other heavier reading, which you'll hear about later. So again, it's called The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sangu Mandana. And this has been out since 2022. All right. Well, I am reading The Divine Comedy by Dante, and that is slow going. And I actually realized, wow, I'm totally not in the mood for this right now on this particular day. And that's when I picked up Hester and I was like swooped into that. So I was like, okay, The Divine Comedy will be there when I get back from this book. And it is. And one of my friends that's doing the buddy read, uh, Sue, Biblio Sue, as she is known on social media, 
recommended a book called Beowulf on the Beach by Jack Meringan. The subtitle is What to Love and What to Skip in Literature's 50 Greatest Hits. Hmm. So I was just like, wow, I did a little story on Instagram. I was like, the younger me would have never read this book because like, you don't skip things in great literature. You just don't. But the older me really appreciates the guidance <laughs> and the humor. He has 50 greatest hits of 50 great books in literature and kind of helps you focus in on certain things. There is a chapter on the Divine Comedy. And as a lot of people have said, the first book Inferno is pretty much the one that's worth reading. So we'll see how that goes. Colleen, who's also doing the buddy read, has a cousin from Italy who said Inferno is the only one worth reading. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it kind of gives you permission then? Well, a little bit of understanding and some permission, I'm sure. I think the understanding is really helpful just to know that maybe these parts are not exactly created equally in some ways. They have different intentions. They were written in different time periods of Dante's life. I know that. The beginning part is where he puts a lot of his enemies in hell, (laughs) which is always a fun, snarky thing. Of course, I had to look at the other books in this book, and Ulysses made the cut. (laughs) Just the first sentence made me laugh. James Joyce's Ulysses might well be the biggest pain in the ass literature has ever produced. (laughs) It's like, yep. So um, I am going to be reading, again, The Divine Comedy in the coming days. I'm listening to an audiobook, Dear Season, by Aaron Flanagan. Aaron is a guest on this episode, which you'll hear coming up with Katrina Kittle. We talked with both of these authors. They're both living in Ohio and they're friends. It was so much fun to talk with both of them. So we think you're really going to enjoy our interview at the end of this episode. But Deer Season is her first novel that she won the Edgar for, for Best First Novel by an American Writer. This is one that I've seen in places before. It's set in Nebraska. And I look back through my notes, and the Willa Cather Foundation did have her on as a guest of part of their virtual author series. And I wasn't able to attend it for whatever reason. But I'm enjoying the book. I'm 46% in at this point. And I don't know who did it or if anything has been done, really. (laughs) It's a teenage girl who is gone. They live in this small town in Nebraska where nothing ever happens. And she is not in her bed the next morning. Mm -hmm. So you get the story in part through her younger brother, who's 12. He adored his older sister, and he's trying to understand things. Of course, she was also a pain in the ass, as older sisters are. But he loves her. And, you know, there's some funny lines from him, like, He's in her room looking around, and he's like, oh, he's like, you know, anybody who doesn't think girls smell doesn't have an older sister who plays volleyball. <laughs> you know? So um, there are a lot of adults. There is a lot of drinking, that small town pastime. Affairs are happening. Everybody knows everybody. One of the characters is an outsider who married into the community, so to say, there's a young man who was mentally challenged because he had a, an accident when he was younger that deprived oxygen to his brain. So he's kind of being set up as the fall guy at this point, I think. So more to come about that. Uh, the audio narrator is Sarah Wellborn. I'm listening to it via Hoopla, which is, you know, always a fun thing. So Emily, what have you just read? 
Well, the reason I need a light read right now is because I just finished Jesmyn Ward's book, Let Us Descend. This book is publishing on October 3rd. When it came in the mail, I screamed out loud. I love Jesmyn Ward so much. She has won the National Book Award twice, 2011 and 2017. I believe she was the first Black woman to win the National Book Award. She's also a MacArthur Genius Grant winner, the 2022 Library of Congress Award for Fiction, and she's 46 people. So she's very accomplished. She's an amazing writer. The last thing I had read by her was actually an article that I came across in Vanity Fair that she wrote about losing her husband early in the pandemic, like March of 2020, before we knew what COVID was. It's a beautifully written piece. I will link to that in the show notes. But this is a new novel that she wrote, and it's about Annis, who's an enslaved girl living in Georgia when the book first opens. She was sired by her slave owner. So the owner of the farm raped her mother. Both Annis and her mother are enslaved and working on the plantation. Annis's mother works really hard to train her physically to be able to fight. So they go off into the woods and fight each other. And they come from a lineage of warriors. And so there is some magical realism here where there is a, it's not a spirit, it's almost like a piece of weather that visits her, whose name is Aza. Aza has some history with her family and knows about Annis's lineage. I'm trying to be very cagey so as not to totally give away the whole story. At one point, her father sends her mother away. So slaveholder sends mom away. Annis is now there, and he's starting to have eyes for her. Yeah. Disgusting. His daughter. There's some really hard parts about this book. Now, Annis ends up having a relationship with one of the other enslaved women and is caught And so he loses interest in her and sends her off. And one of the hardest parts of the book is there's a very long journey with a group of slaves being driven literally from Georgia to Louisiana. It's very difficult. It is so palpable, the experiences they're having of going through bodies of water while chained to each other. That part is really hard. I mean, the book is not... An easy read, it does, I'm going to tell you, have an uplifting ending, which I think was brilliant of Jasmine Ward to do. But I wanted to read a part because the thing I love about her writing is just on a sentence level, it's beautiful. So this is something she does in one paragraph where she's talking about the new home she's at in Georgia The man that she's referring to at the beginning of the paragraph is her new enslaver and his wife, who she refers to as mistress, but it's really his wife. And then the end of the paragraph changes to how Annis felt about Safi, who was the woman that she was having a relationship when she was living in Georgia. The man eats his share at dinner. There are no scraps because he leaves none. He wipes his plates clean with bread, with his knife and fork and spoon, As he drinks, he burns brighter and brighter, turns red as the heart of a fire, but his hands and the edge of his scalp still gleam pale and yellow. The mistress reaches out over the corner of the table every so often, 
touches his forearm, his elbow, once even his face. How easy she is with her affection for him. How sure she is of its reach, its life, its return, because he touches her too. She squints and laughs when his hand finds her face. Her sallow cheek shines with the peach shimmer of the underside of a bird's wing. Safi touched me just so when she kissed me, making a birdcage of her fingers, a careful enclosure of my visage. How I loved being her kept bird, clipped and settled. I preened for her, leaned into her, heart fluttering. How I wanted what this woman has, to touch Safi in the light of day, outside the nest of trees, the buzz of the hive, to be safe in love, but I could not. Mm. I mean, her writing is so beautiful. It's a tough read, like I said, but on a sentence level, just amazing. And it does have a hopeful ending. So I do want people to know that it's worth the struggle to get through. And it's an important part of history. You know, there's always a part that's a surprise to me that I'm embarrassed by, in the sense that, you know, I feel naive. And that was about how enslaved humans enslaved people were used as having a value, not necessarily just for their own body, but for what their body could create, meaning more people that either would then be used to help the mechanics of the farm or to be sold for money. Yeah, as a commodity. As a commodity, yeah. yeah. I mean, literally how inhumane it was. It's not that I haven't read that before, but this is just a different perspective on that. So again, it's called Let Us Descend by Jesmyn Ward. I forgot one very important detail, Chris. There's also a huge Dante aspect (laughs) to this book. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, Chris, Dante is everywhere, which she's been saying. And um, even the term Let Us Descend comes from Dante's Inferno. Let us descend, the poet now began, and enter this blind world, Inferno, Dante. There's a scene in the book where when she's at the farm in Georgia, her two sisters, the white sisters, are being taught by a tutor, and he's reading Dante to them. Mm. So she walks by the door, and there's passages from Inferno. And I was like, this is really weird. Even the title of the book comes from it. That's totally bizarre. Yeah. It is, you know, it's that synchronicity, right? Something is in the air. Yes. With Dante. <laughs> Chris has a hashtag, Dante on a doily. Follow it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I read something. Well, I finished A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. I think I was reading this last episode, or I had just started it, or I was hoping to start it. I really enjoyed this novel so much. It was... One of those horror novels that keeps you guessing as to what's going on. It starts off with a teenage girl who is starting to have schizophrenic episodes, possibly. Or is she possessed? It could go depending on who's looking at it. Either way, there's a younger sibling. And so we get a lot of the story through the younger sibling, which is, I think, an interesting choice for an author, because then they can present things as questionable. You know, kids are unreliable narrators in a lot of ways, because they don't always understand the context. But then sometimes they're really more truthful than an adult can be. 
because they don't understand the context, but they're seeing what's happening. Right. right. And they're not afraid to say it. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't they don't know the repercussions or yeah. what have you. But there's a mom and a dad, and then these two sisters. If it takes place in Massachusetts, dad had gotten laid off from a plant that had been going for decades, can't find a new job. They're going downhill fast as a family. And the older daughter having these issues. The dad turns back to the Catholic Church, which he had been raised within, and gets a priest involved in hoping that will help because the mental health professional that they're seeing with the daughter doesn't seem to be helping. So he makes this decision without his wife. Things get a little bit surprising. Okay, this isn't too much of a spoiler because it's on the back of the book, but I know sometimes blurbs can be too spoilery <laughs> for our taste. But the Catholic Church ends up involving a reality TV show. Well, I thought it was going to go to an exorcism. So, Well, <laughs> there's that. And that's, you know, that's kind of like the, the, pinnacle. the pinnacle of the reality <laughs> TV show. So the thing with the head full of ghosts, it's an interesting title because when you're possessed, you're full of whatever it is that's possessing you. And the daughter hears a lot of voices. So in the end, she knows that the family is struggling financially. She knows that this reality TV show is going to bring the family financial security. And then even within how the show is shot, it's fascinating because the younger daughter notices like the way they film dad, they make him look big and manly and in control of the situation. He is the great white patriarch Whereas the mom is presented as the doubting Thomas sitting at the kitchen table with her shoulder slumped drinking wine. Hmm. And so the younger daughter is noticing this. There's interstitial stuff in this book as well in the form of blog posts. So there's a blogger talking about the reality show. It's an interesting piece of contemporary fiction in that it's looking at ourselves and what we do as a culture with reality TV shows and blogs and truth and what what is the real story. And within this, there's a famous writer who's interviewing a survivor within the family about the experience because she's ghostwriting a book for her. Or it might be their book. They've referred to her as their book. It's one of those books you finish and you think, Oh, I think this is what happened. Well, no, really, because that couldn't have happened because of this. So it was probably that. So you don't really know. It's ambiguous. And we talked about that yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. when we got to see him, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. But again, that was A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. I can totally see why this is a lot of people's favorite haunting possession type book. Mm. I finished The Last Ranger by Peter Heller. This book just came out. It takes place in Yellowstone National Park. We've both read some Peter Heller in the past. One of the things I love about him is he's both a poet and he wrote and still continues to write, I think, a lot of nonfiction, particularly travel fiction. So he's very into action and adventure, and he has experienced a lot of it. The main character of this book is Ren, and he's a park ranger tasked with keeping track of what's happening in the park, both with the local wildlife and then human wildlife that comes into the park a lot, especially in the summer. Humans are interested in wildlife and sometimes don't take into account 
the danger of being near wildlife. And so he deals with people who are trying to get the best TikTok video and not necessarily realizing that being really close to an elk and its baby might be a bad idea. So he's um, taking care of business in that way. But then there's also a biologist that lives on site in a cabin next to him, and she's studying the wolves. And in 1995, a wolf pack was reintroduced into Yellowstone. And so now there are several packs of wolves thriving, and she's studying them. And at the same time, they're also coming into contact with hunters and trappers and people who are doing illegal things within the boundaries of the park, as well as people who think that maybe the park shouldn't be public land, that they should be allowed to use it just like any other piece of land. Because it's public, right? They right. should be allowed to drill right. and mine yeah. on it. Do right? whatever they yeah. want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that Heller does really beautifully in this book is he weaves Ren's backstory in. And it's really gentle. The whole book is very subtle in a lot of ways. It's beautifully written and really takes you into the park, which I've never been to Yellowstone. So I really enjoyed that part. There's a little bit of romance, a little bit of sadness, a little bit of death. So I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed his other books like Celine or The Guide, somewhat similar in tone, but a different location. Again, it's called The Last Ranger by Peter Heller. Mm, I look forward to that. I enjoy his work. And that made me think a little bit of The Loop by Nicholas Evans. He's the guy who wrote The Horse Whisperer. Mm, But The the Loop is about wolves and Yellowstone and and that area and what the introduction fights about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been very controversial in real life. I understand ecologically why it's important. Mm -hmm. And also I understand the tension between people wanting to visit the park and enjoy it versus trespassing farther than they should. And, you know, people trying to make a living all of it and living off the land. So interesting. So we had a listener reach out via email asking us how to set up the Book Cougars as their affiliate on bookshop.org. Yeah, because bookshop.org, sometimes when you log into it or you follow a link from somewhere on the internet, you end up at different bookshops. And the listener wanted to know, like, how do I make your shop my default? If you do need to do a search for the book cougars, you do the search, and then the books are going to come up first. There's a little tab in the left corner that'll say books or shops, I think, and you want to click shops. And then from there, you should be able to see our logo and click on that. It's kind of convoluted in that way. But again, the benefit is you are not just signed up for like one affiliate shop. But we really appreciate listeners who want to support us in that way and purchase books through bookshop.org. The great thing is we do get a 10% commission for each book purchased through our shop. And bookshop.org also gives 10% to the general independent bookstore population. So they are definitely giving back to bookshops, which is what we love about them. Yeah. And I'm just going to read what our link is just in case you want to write it down. If you don't, if you go to our show notes, it is in there. You can click on the link and then bookmark it. And that's another way to get to it easily on your browser. So it's bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash book cougars. 
We really appreciate you helping to support the podcast. Yes. And thank you so much for that question. So we went on some Biblio adventures. Yeah, we sure did. We went back to Boston recently. We spent the day working at Simmons University. I had some research to do in the archives. And Chris rented or held, I should say, a room for me in the library that has this beautiful conference table. So she teased me that I look like I was a CEO and they're working. <laughs> yeah, I took a break and walked over and had a protein bar or something. And I felt like I was walking to the CEO's office for sure. <laughs> but that was fun to get work done like that kind of together in a way. And then we headed to Porter Square Books in Cambridge, which we had never been to before. It's another one of those bookstores that's in a kind of like a shopping center and it doesn't look like a lot from the outside, but then was really nice inside. Yeah, we got there and they were getting ready to close because they closed for the event. The event was at seven. And so we didn't have a ton of time to browse and shop. But what we did see, we really loved great curation of books and then also some really fun sidelines that we hadn't seen before in other bookstores. Yeah, they had these really cool little embroidery kits and amazing socks, which we have seen in other stores, but we saw some we'd never seen before. Yeah, some socks that we hadn't seen. Yeah. yeah. So we'll definitely head back there one of these days. Boston during rush hours, not the best place <laughs> to try to get anywhere. And it was a good drive. I mean, Emily is a kick-ass navigator. So she was like, no, don't listen to the thing. Turn left here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You, she got us there around some backups, which was fun. I don't like traffic, so I'll do anything to avoid it. And your GPS doesn't always know how. And that's yeah. a gift of having a navigator. You can't always do that when you're in your car by yeah, yourself. you can't. But we were there for a great event, a conversation between two authors. Paul Tremblay, who Chris was just talking about, was there to talk about his new book, The Beast You Are, which is a short story collection. And then Laura Sims, whose book, How Can I Help You?, is a book that Chris recently talked about loving. Oh, yeah, so much fun. Such a good book. And it was so neat to meet her right after reading a book yeah. from her for the first time. It's her second novel. Her first was Looker, which I'm hoping to read soon. And that is a book that's being made into a movie when the writer's strike is over. They were really wonderful together. Paul actually had blurbed Laura's book, so that was kind of fun. So he really knows her work, and she knows his as well. Should I read his blurb? Sure. I just happen to have the book in front of me. An insidiously readable psychological trap set by and for its two unforgettable and unforgiving protagonists. I couldn't have loved this book more. It's a nice blurb. Isn't that? Yeah, a very nice blurb. And it reminded me, because when I talked about that book on the podcast, I think that, I don't know if I said the main characters' names, Margot, and it's Patricia, it looks like on the page, but it's pronounced Patricia in the book. <laughs> you learn that that's how she pronounces her name. It was fun to hear her talk about that. We learned so much about her writing journey because Laura Sims started her writing life as a poet, very well-respected poet. She's won awards. She's had multiple collections published. And then Ironically, when she had her child, she said, when I had the least time ever is when I felt called to write a novel, right. to write long form yeah. fiction. She's like, go figure. 
Um, but that is what she felt compelled to write. Yeah. And she wrote some novels that weren't picked up at all, but has had two successful novels. Yes. And then in this one, How Can I Help You? One of the characters, Patricia, is a frustrated writer. She had just spent all this time working on her novel that gets rejected. And we found out during this event that that's what happened to Laura's second adult novel. You know, she had this great success with Looker. And then her second novel, no one wanted to buy it. And, you know, you hear this from people. It's just shocking to me, but it does happen. And that that novel was one of those that was stolen by that guy who was stealing people's manuscripts. He was posing as their agents and he's been arrested and I think is currently going through the court system with that case. I know it was funny. Someone in the audience said, are you compelled to write a novel that might have that as part of the story arc? And Paul said, yeah, like every novelist out in the world right now. (laughs) Right. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. So much fun, though. Such a great event. Really wonderful. They both talked about their writing process. One of the things that I was struck with Paul, he's been writing now for, I think this is over 20 years, maybe. But he said his first 10 years of writing, he didn't have to worry about social media at all. He was just a writer writing his books. And he said, but then the second 10 years, there's been so much pressure to be on social media, to be active, to grow a following so that publishers feel more comfortable that they assume that if you have a social media following, that translates into book sales. So it's a very different world for writers just within his own the first part of his career. And it's interesting that the book Looker and the book that you just read of his both dealt with social media in Mm -hmm. some way, you know, it's like they they took that and put it into their novels. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's real. (laughs) For some reason, the way that I had read the event, I thought that he was in conversation with her about her novel, but they both did a really good job of asking each other questions back and forth. Yeah. It was really interesting conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. That's what I thought at first too, is that she was on tour mm-hmm. and that he happened to be a local author. But right. yeah, that was actually an event for both of them. And Chris talked about how the novel of his that she just read had an ambiguous ending. Someone in the audience did ask him about his ambiguous endings and why he felt compelled to do them. And someone else in the audience piped up like, yeah, why? And then the best part of his answer is he didn't really answer the question. Yeah, yeah, he talked for a while and then moved on. And and then you realize like, wait, he didn't answer that. I thought that was quite brilliant. Yeah, really good. And then the other thing we did together, we've had two joint jaunts in the last two weeks, was we went to Old Saybrook, just down the street and the shoreline from us. Yeah, we went to the Old Saybrook Historical Society where they have an exhibit that's going on now that just recently opened, and I think it's going until October, about Anna James, who was the first African-American woman pharmacist in Connecticut, and her niece, the writer, Ann Petrie, who we've been talking about a lot because our Vintage Book Club is currently reading Ann Petrie's works. The Old Saybrook Historical Society is pretty much just across the street from the James Pharmacy, So we actually met some friends for lunch there at the pharmacy, which is now a wonderful French restaurant, pastry shop, 
and then walked over to the exhibit, which was so cool. It was really cool. It's in the Hart House, which is a historic home or museum. They refer to it as a historic yeah. museum, but it's in an old home. Yeah, it's a museum house. Yeah. Like, yeah. House yeah. museum. House museum, museum, a house that's now a museum, whatever. There was actually, they were setting up in the back for a wedding, which was really cool. But it's a beautiful old house. And this exhibit was in the back. It started with a video that had Anne Petrie's daughter narrating. Yes, who sadly passed away very recently. So they're very grateful that she was able to be part of this video because she talks about her family's experience in Old Saybrook. And then they also have a lot of artifacts from James's pharmacy. Yeah, and quite a bit of it, they said, actually came from a couple who had had their first date at the pharmacy and had, I don't know, through auction or something, come across a lot of this. I mean, literally, like bottles of pills and the notebook that Anna James wrote down because they used to have to really make the medicines, right? you know? Yeah. So there's this whole organizational system with her slips in it and yeah, pills. I mean, some of the medications were from brand names and others were ones that she created herself that have the James pharmacy label on them. Yeah. And I had read somewhere else about her that when I read that biography, I guess, when she retired and closed the pharmacy, she donated a lot of her cabinets, the glass cabinets and display cases and stuff to University of Connecticut. So these items must have been part of however that family got a hold of them. Right. You just don't know how things like that happen. But there were also some beautiful photographs. Ann Petrie's writing desk was there. So it was a very small exhibit, but really well done and I enjoyed it. I'm so glad we went. Yeah, I did too. And it's uh, a lot to read. You know, they had a lot of great signage and explanations of things. And then they have uh, Petrie's books on display. So you could leaf through them. Yeah. Chris also at Coquette, which is the, the French bistro across the street, purchased two of Anne Petrie's books, Country Place and Miss Muriel. Yeah, Miss Muriel and other stories. Right. Yeah, because when I read Country Place before, it was a, either a library copy or an e-copy. I don't remember, but I wanted to have my own copy because that is the next book that the Vintage Book Club will be reading in October. Yeah. yeah, so it was nice that they have her books available there. Yeah, and the chef was really excited to sell books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's like, this is how we stay open. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a lot of, it's another great place. If you're in the neighborhood at all, it's a great place to buy gifts. They have beautiful foodstuffs and pans and cookbooks like Jacques Pepin cookbooks and things like that. Yeah, so, spices yeah. and really beautiful containers and a tea set. Yeah. Drinking glasses, really wonderful place. And Old Saybrook was colonized by the Dutch whereas Guilford was colonized by the British. We even have some fun history in Guilford about that when there was the rebellion against the crown. Lots of great local history here. That is actually national history on the shoreline. But that would also explain why some of the architecture in Old Saybrook is a little different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Well, we also have an upcoming jaunt. Yes, we are going to be heading back to Edith Wharton's home, The Mount, doing some Nathaniel Hawthorne scouting in the area. Nathaniel Hawthorne lived up near Lenox, 
in the 1850s, 1851 time period, I think. And he lived in the town over, the next town over near what is Tanglewood. So we're going to check out a recreation of his little cottage where he stayed and where Melville hung out with him. Melville's house is also in the area, Arrowhead. And we're hoping to get back to the Lennox Library as well, because the last time we were there, they were just starting a renovation of the ceiling of one of their beautiful rooms. So we're looking forward to seeing how that's progressing. Yeah, and you know, the last time we went, we were reading Edith Wharton ghost stories that took place in New England. Maybe we'll see, you know, like Nathaniel Hawthorne's ghost when we're up there, or Melville's. I know. Well, you know, Hawthorne would walk from his little cottage to Lennox to get his mail every day, and it's like a two-mile walk. So maybe we'll see him on the road. It's supposed to be a rainy day when we head up there, so that could be fun and misty. Very atmospheric. We'll report back. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be up there for an overnight trip, so we'll be there uh, to see also the next day. Stacy Schiff is going to be at the Mount as part of their speaker series. She'll be in conversation with Andre Bernard. So looking forward to that very much, too. And Stacy Schiff wrote a bunch of different biographies. One of her most well-known and loved is on Cleopatra. And I'm currently kind of reading her witches book, which is a history of the Salem witch trials. And I think the book she's there to talk about on Friday is the revolution about Samuel Adams. Yeah, that's her latest. And I imagine the the topic will be focused on that. Yeah, witches, it's not exactly gripping me. It's not a book I'm whipping through by any stretch of the imagination. And I know Karen, aka Barker for Books on social media, said... She read it. She's happy to get another box checked off on her bingo card, but that it was a bit of a slog. Yeah, several of the reviews have said that about it as well. Yeah, so apologies for that. (laughs) But um, I think it's full of information, but it's just not exactly a compelling narrative, apparently. Right. Unlike some of her other books, I think. I mean, the thing is about the Salem witch trials, I guess there's not a ton of archival evidence left which is odd, and that's a point that she makes in the book, is that these were people who were writing journals left and right and writing letters left and right, but there's nothing really or hardly anything about that time period. They burned it all. One of the reviews I read also said that that book strays from what she typically does, which is focusing on a person. Mm -hmm. We also want to remind people that coming up, future events of Our Scarlet Summer is on August 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern. That's a Sunday evening. We're going to do a watch party of the 1934 movie adaptation of The Scarlet Letter. So we've come up with a way that we can begin the movie, but we can give you a login link and you can watch along with us. Yes. Yeah, you do have to sign up for an account, just your email and a password. It's a free service, but you do have to make an account for this watch along service, but um, it should be fun. So send us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to join in and we will get you all the login information. And then in September, we'll have a Zoom discussion of Alice Hoffman's The Invisible Hour, where we'll also talk about Hester and The Scarlet Letter and the movie adaptations We usually make the read-alongs 60 minutes, and we try to stick to that just to be aware of everybody's time. But we're going to make that discussion 90 minutes, uh, just since we'll be talking about a lot more than just one book. 
Right. And reminder that we've updated the date on that. There's been a change to that. So it's September 10th, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Send us an email if you want to join in. Bookcougars at gmail.com. Also, you don't have to have read all of the books or watched the movies or any of them to participate. And we also don't make people talk other than in the beginning just to say who you are and where you're dialing in from. Because we know some people don't really like to talk publicly, but they want to hear the conversation. So you're welcome to do that as well. We'd love to have you. So upcoming reads. I've got myself some witchy reads. I've got a witchy stack. (laughs) And this is in thanks in large part to people who've been reaching out and telling us about their witchy picks. So one of them is Wayward by Amelia Hart. Witches of Moonshine Manor by Bianca Murray, which has been, I've started it when it came out and just never got back to it. So I really appreciated the reminder on that one. Hour of the Witch by Chris Bojalian, mm. who I really enjoy. So I'm looking forward to that one. And then The Once and Future Witches by Alex Harrow, which is a YA novel, which I saw on the staff pick table at Porter Square Books and had never heard of. So I got it out of the library when we got home. Lots nice. of witchy reading. Yeah, what is that big thick one there, the second from the bottom? That's The Once and Future Witches by Alex Iharo, and it's a YA novel. Okay. Now, she's the person we saw way back pre-pandemic at the Hachette Book Brunch with her book, The 10,000 Doors of January. Wow. Remember that? Yeah. The 10,000 Doors of January was her debut. This is her second novel. And I don't remember if that one was a YA. I don't remember it being YA. I don't either. So yeah, this one's a chunkster. It could be another big book read. It's almost 500 pages. Very nice. Yeah, big book summer. Well, what about you? I am going to be reading The Red Garden by Alice Hoffman. Right on. Yeah, I'm going to start this probably tonight. And then I also am going to read Tatuba of Salem Village by Anne Petrie. We have a copy here from the old Saybrook Library. And it's not Tatuba. I've heard it pronounced different ways. Tatuba, I think, is a way. So not 100% on that, but I look forward to it. That is also a young adult novel. Right on. We've got some witchy reading, some Scarlet Summer reading going on. We'd love to hear how your Scarlet Summer is progressing. Send us updates on your bingo cards. Send us updates if you've made some substitutions to your bingo cards. Yeah, and you know, you're welcome to do that with those duplicates that are on there of the three main books that we're reading, The Scarlet Letter, Hester, and The Invisible Hour. You can just keep one on there and substitute the other's Coming up next is our conversation with Katrina Kittle and Aaron Flanagan. These are authors who are friends in real life. They live in the Dayton, Ohio area, and they both have books coming out within a month of each other. Aaron's book is Come With Me. Katrina's book is Morning in This Broken World. We had a great time talking with them, lots of laughing. We also did a Friday Reads video with them last week. So if you want to see their faces, go to our YouTube channel. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And we were recording with them on a Friday. So it was kind of like, hey, you guys up for this? Stick and they around. Were. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, we wish you all happy, happy reading. reading. 
We're excited to be here today with two authors, Aaron Flanagan and Katrina Kittle. We'll ask both of them to introduce themselves a bit so you'll get to know their voices. But just in case they don't toot their own horns enough, we want listeners to know about their writing prowess. Erin Flanagan is the author of three novels. Her first, Dear Season, won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel by an American Author. Her second was Blackout, and her forthcoming third novel, Come With Me, is out later this month. Katrina Kittle's sixth novel, Morning in This Broken World, is coming out in September. She has written one novel for young adults and four novels for adults, which have been picked for Book Sense, Indie Next, Midwest Connections, and the Women's National Book Association. Her novel, The Kindness of Strangers, won the Great Lakes Book Award. Welcome, Erin and Katrina. Thank you you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. So we thought since there are two of you, we would ask you to introduce each of your forthcoming novels so listeners can get adjusted to the sound of your voice. Erin, do you want to go first? Sure. So my newest novel, Come With Me, is um, about a newly widowed young mother who um, falls under the sway of an old acquaintance whose friends have a history of disappearing. Oops, you did that so short and sweet. (laughs) Just like me. It's true. It's true. This is Katrina, and my upcoming book, Morning in This Broken World, is about a very unlikely pandemic pack that is forced together by COVID. The book is not about COVID. It's just the catalyst for the story. And there's four point of view characters. And I also start with a widow. That's interesting that we have that in common. They come together and help each other get rid of this armor they were all wearing and isolation they were all wearing before COVID and kind of emerge as their truer selves at the end. Nice. Well, speaking of things in common, can you tell us how did you both become friends? How did you meet? I know you don't write together, but you seem to have a lot of cross-pollination. <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> um, I'm a big gardener, so I love that phrase. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Aaron, I was trying to think earlier today, when did we meet? Was it 2006 with Kindness of Strangers? It was at Wright State. You had come for a reading, and it was in the winter, and we were going to have the event in the Union, and normally it would be really quiet there, but they'd had to close a different cafeteria, so all the kids were there eating dinner, like all their silverwares, they're yakking away, and I'm trying to conduct this class, and I was so embarrassed because it was so loud, and I said, oh, God, I'm really, really sorry about this. And you said, it's fine. I'm an actor. I can throw my voice. And I thought, if I ever handle anything with that much grace, it would be a miracle. <laughs> oh it made me feel so much better. And ever since then, I was like, ooh, I hope we become friends. And we did. And we did. Oh, my gosh, I remember that. It was so loud in there. And there wasn't a mic. And I was just yelling for these poor students. And students, we just kept asking them to move closer and closer. I mean, my knees were probably touching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were, it was hilarious. Yeah, we were pretty much in everybody's lap by then. <laughs> I know. But I think it went well under the circumstances. And we did, yeah, thanks we, to you. We, we did stay in touch. And I know as a thank you, at one point for coming to talk to one of your classes, we went out for Indian food after Mm-hmm. And that kind of sealed the deal. Our love of good food and our love of eating. And you were just so yes. funny. And now it's hard to remember you not being in my life. I know. And, I feel the same. And it's kind of crazy. But this business, as you guys know, Chris and Emily, is so brutal at times. And writing can be so isolating. And 
the publishing industry is just so like, you know, it can be make you feel so defeated at times. And it just helps to have really good writing friends on the journey with you who get it, who know how hard mm-hmm. it is and know how capricious the business can be. And what I particularly love about Aaron and, and our mutual friend Meredith is not only are they these kick-ass amazing writers, they're also teaching university level classes. Mm-hmm. And so that's another challenge and that we have that in common. Like these are two women I can just really vent to who get it, who get every aspect of my life at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so many writers talk about uh, writers who are teachers. Um, like I know Stephen King had mentioned it in his book on writing, the toll that teaching took mm-hmm. on his writing. Um, but then I've heard other people say that it really helps feed their writing. So how do you balance that teaching with writing? And does it feed you or do you need to write in bursts on school breaks? I think for me, that's really changed over the years. With teaching, when I first started the gig, it took me so long to prep for class, to read the stories, to respond to the stories. Like it was hours and hours and hours and hours every day. I learned how to do these little snippets of 20 minutes writing here, there, here, there. And I've been able to keep that habit, but I've been teaching now for 20 years. So I'm much faster at grading and reading and responding. And I can see things a lot more quickly. I think they're getting the same level, probably better of feedback, but it doesn't take me as long. So now I do have much longer stretches where I can devote that energy to writing in a way I couldn't before, but I'm so thankful I learned how to write in bursts. So I can still do that now. And like, if I've got half hour between classes, I'm like, dig it in. And Aaron inspires me that way big time. Cause I used to be one of those people who always felt like, oh, I need these big chunks of time. And they never materialize, especially Mm -hmm. during a semester when you're teaching. And so I have gotten lots better at those bursts, as you call them. And yeah, you just train yourself to write whenever you can and not be so precious about it like I used Mm -hmm. to be. But for me with the teaching, it can be draining, especially toward the end of a semester with all of the grading. I am getting better at that. I'm relatively new to university teaching. I'm heading into my sixth year, but I've taught creative writing for many, many years, just not in this setting. I'm a two-time cancer survivor. I had breast cancer twice, and I was actually writing full-time and teaching a lot of creative writing classes and doing okay. And the second time I had cancer, I just got so nervous about, you know, I'd eaten through my savings. I wanted to rebuild my savings. So that for me, two things. I learned that I did have the discipline to write full-time, but I really missed belonging to a community. And I got really nervous about health insurance, being self-employed and paying for health insurance. I mean, the ACA saved me but it was just getting so unaffordable. And so, you know, when I got this gig, it's amazing gig. And then, you know, I wanted community. I was feeling lonely and I wanted community. And then I teach for a year and we head into the pandemic. Mm. (laughs) So I was back (laughs) isolated again, but I have found it works well. It's a really nice balance. And the security of that health Mm -hmm. insurance allows me to be more creative. Mm -hmm. I don't have that anxiety hanging over my head. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good thing. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's talk about um, a theme that both of your books share, which is found family, or maybe trying to escape some members of your family and look for family elsewhere. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? The idea of found family is such an interesting one. And I hadn't thought about that in my book because ultimately that is not necessarily a good thing for (laughs) Gwen to have found. I was very conscious of writing about 
female friendships when I started the book. I was single until my mid-30s. So for the first three decades of my life, my central relationships were my female friends. You know, I might have a romantic partner here or there, but really those were the relationships that sustained me. I went on vacations with women. These were the ones I would call in the middle of the night sobbing. They were the ones who lifted me up. And I feel like those relationships get short shift in our society sometime. Like, oh, it's just a friend. That's not your partner. That's not your spouse or whatever. And for me, those were really central. And I had a lot of friendships that were really intense, some positive, some negative, and some both. And so I really wanted to kind of capture what it's like to have that intense feeling for somebody in a non-romantic way. Like I remember breaking up with one woman in our car, like we were outside work and we're like, I think we just need to take a break and we're sobbing, but it was a breakup, but there was no real language to talk about that. And so that was, I think, like the idea of female friendships more than found family. But I think that's also a really good way to put it. And I think you capture that so beautifully in Come With Me. After my divorce, I was single for about eight years and my friendships during that time I I remember I'm just so committed now to being like, I am not going to ignore those friendships just because now I have a partner again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, you guys were my substitute. I had that, that, the value of those friendships. So I never wanted to be that woman who like abandoned them now that I have a man again, you know, I don't don't want to do that. But um, yeah, and I think in my books, I'm so interested in found family, which somebody pointed out to me is very interesting because I had such a safe and wonderful immediate family that why am I always writing about people finding family in other places? But I just think it fascinates me. And I know my mom was one of those people who, she was a preschool teacher, but her students from preschool stayed in touch with her. And she was always helping other people and people would come over and introduce their kids to her. Like, I think I saw her help people find those relationships they didn't have in their own life. She kind of gotten known for her class was full of the problem kids, the troubled kids, because she was so good with them and they connected to her and stayed in touch with them. So I think that was fascinating, but I am also really interested in multi-generational friendships though. I love stories about those and, you know, just how people find those, how those come to be. Um, So I'm always interested in exploring that, I think. Yeah, I'm very interested in that as well. And I, Katrina, your novel made me think of Ann Tyler. And she definitely is the queen of putting these characters together that you wouldn't think would end up together. And I think that's what's interesting about found family or choosing your stories. It's the same with like, choose your own adventures. Yeah, choose your own own adventures, choose the people in your life. And I do think divorce, both of what you say really resonates because I think with divorce, you kind of find out who can buoy you and also realize like one person in your life can't be everything and also can't destroy you. Like you need to go on, Amen. you know? Yeah. yeah. Amen. Yeah. And thank well you so much for that Ann Tyler comment. That means the world to me. I will be floating on that for months. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I have a question about setting. I'm currently listening to Dear Season and we have a mutual Nebraska connection. And I also attended University of Nebraska Lincoln. I have relatives out in Nebraska, so spent a lot of time out there. For listeners, I'm from Illinois originally, and Emily, Katrina, and Aaron are all from Ohio. 
Yeah. I'm actually Iowa. Iowa. But, okay. All right. But everybody thinks Iowa, Nebraska, and Illinois are the same. The same so thing. Really right. So, well, we're, we're Midwest strong here uh, mm-hmm. today. Yeah. But I love the way you captured some of those. To me, it's uniquely Nebraska, like, you know, the one finger wave when you're driving. Um, and then the descriptions of the pig farm, you know, working mm-hmm. on the pig farm in different chores that need to be done. So how important is it for you to be in a setting that you're going to write about? Or do you do a lot of online research about a setting? I'm wondering if you could speak to that a bit. Yeah, for me, it's always been better if I have some kind of personal connection to the place. And part of that is logistics. So in deer season, the town of Gunthrum is based on the small town in Iowa where I grew up, Sanborn. And so I knew where the bank was in relation to the grocery store, in relation to the hardware store. And so I could map that out in my head and not get confused. And that's why I write a lot about Dayton, where I've lived now for quite a few years. So I think like logistically, it helps. But also, those are the stories that I think I'm most drawn to. I would fail woefully if I tried to write a story that took place in New York. I don't know what those people are thinking. (laughs) And I feel like with Midwesterners, I have like a good sense of the logic behind those people. And I think Midwesterners, especially like I joked, oh, everybody thinks Iowa and Nebraska are the same state. But I do think that it's a population that a lot of people think of a certain way, like, oh, those rubes out in the Midwest, or they're a bunch of Karens or whatever. And I think there's a lot more complication behind Midwestern people, as there are with anybody, Um, but that they're not an emotive group necessarily. (laughs) So that gets uh, mistaken for flat. So those are, I guess, the stories that I most want to tell in those places. I love Deer Season so, so much. I just think that's such a beautiful book. I think I'm very similar that it helps me to write about a place I know really well I have occasionally ventured away. Part of my young adult novel takes place in LA and I've only been there once. And I did a lot of online for that, but that's a big exception. All the rest of my stories are here in the Dayton area, even Dayton, Cincinnati. I feel for me, it was, well, why shouldn't the story be here? When You know, there's so many stories about New Orleans and New York and LA. And it was kind of like, we have just as much drama going on right here. I have to say for listeners, I lived in the Dayton area. I was born and raised there and then left for a little while and came back and raised my children there. And reading both of these novels, it was so fun. All the little nods to the Dayton area made me feel like I was back at home. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you. So can we talk about the fact also that both of your novels deal with addiction and the part of addiction in the novels, it's not a redemption story. Neither of them are a redemption story. I mean, it's pretty real in the effects that it has on the ripple effects to the family. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to write about that in your novel? Yeah, so the main widow, the first point of view character in Morning in This Broken World, Vivian, she is estranged from her daughter, Anne-Marie. Her husband's been dead a month when the story opens, and she and her husband have not seen that daughter for seven years. And she was a drug addict. She used to be a pretty promising ballerina, got injured, got addicted to pain meds, and then spiraled from there. And so there's a lot of mystery in the book about whether Anne-Marie will show up. And um, at first, Jack, the husband, was like, she's dead to us because she's come back once and everything seemed great. And then she ended up returning a day later and robbing them. 
And so he's like, she's dead to us. And then when he fell into his Alzheimer's, it was like he forgot. And Vivian could talk about Anne-Marie again. But for me, when I think about the issues of our area, this area got really hit hard with the opioid addiction crisis. And I was really trying to find all the different people who had very different pandemic experiences than I did. For Anne-Marie, will she, won't she resurface? So I guess I'm spoiling a little, but you have to see how it turns out. We won't tell what happens with that. (laughs) Part of the story story she shares of how she needs to stay sober and she can't rent an apartment and she can't get a job during this pandemic. And so she's really in this very tough place. And I heard a lot of stories about people in similar shoes around here. I had such an easy pandemic experience, but there were a lot of people for whom that was very different. And so I think for me in the story, that's where it was just such a common theme here at home that I wanted to include that in the story. And for me, my second novel, Blackout, the main character, Miris, is a recovering alcoholic. She's been sober about seven months, kind of holding on by the skin of her teeth. And she um, starts having these mysterious blackouts. And then after a car accident, realizes at the hospital, she's not the only one it's happening to. So the reason I, I wanted to write about alcoholism in that book was I feel like a lot of the stories I see about addiction go one of two ways. The person spirals down and that's the end of it. They're never going to beat this. They're never going to slay the dragon. Or they do get sober and they stay sober and it's a triumph. And I, talking to different people, I don't really feel like that's always accurate. I think there are a lot of people that stumble and then get back on, stumble and get back on. And I wanted to write a story where the stumble was possible and she could get past it. So a little spoiler alert there. Uh, Maris does at one point fall off the wagon with a thump. And she um, has to then decide, am I going to get back on or am I not? And then at the end of the book, I really wanted to leave her with, I'm doing my best. I am sober right now. I am not guaranteed sobriety, but here's how I'm going to try and shore up going forward. Because I really, I do think that's an important part of addiction. The idea that you can, you can get clean, but you got to stay clean. And if you don't, if you screw up, well, you just got to try again. You know, I really wanted to show that that wasn't the end of the world. I think um, slipping up is just a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I have addiction in reasons to be happy and in two truths and a lie. And I was just saying this to somebody recently, you know, rarely does someone who identifies as an alcoholic or a drug addict, they will never say I'm recovered. They will say I'm in recovery. You know, like they, Mm -hmm. it's an ongoing process and it's a daily choice. And that was really eye-opening for me too. And you're right. We don't see that very often in stories, that continuation of staying sober. Well, it's not easy for a narrative because either it ends happily or it ends sadly. And if it ends with, I don't know, I guess we'll see. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's hard. That's not as satisfying sometimes, but I think it's realistic. Yeah. Well, it goes along with the ambiguous ending, too, as mm-hmm. well, that um, Emily and I have been having conversations about that. Yeah. Um, with novels, yeah. Yeah, we recently heard it. Someone asked an author at an event we were at this week about his ambiguous ending. The funniest part of his answer to me is he didn't answer the question. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
was like, Good on him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, sorry, not going to go there. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So should we talk about winning an Edgar Award and what that was like? Yes. Ladies, there's nothing I love to talk about more. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I just, I see it's it. The best night of my life. I, I see it in behind you there. Um, yeah, there's yeah there's look at it. There he is. Oh, it was just the shock of a lifetime. Like Dear Season was published with a small university press, Nebraska Press, which is fantastic. You know, it wasn't a book that was going to get a lot of play, and then it got the nomination, and I was like, "Oh my god! You mean I wrote a mystery?" <laughs> like it was such a surprise to me because I thought, "Oh, it's too quiet." I didn't feel like I had earned calling it a mystery so when it was nominated it was I about fell over and then when I went to the ceremony because I told my husband I'm like you're getting a tux I'm getting a new dress this is never going to happen again let's do it you know so we went to New York City the country mice and um, (laughs) like I talked to everybody I could I had so much fun and right before my category was announced I turned to my husband and I said this has been such a great night. Like I wanted to remember that Mm -hmm. when they ultimately called somebody else's name, how much fun I had had. And then they called my name and I'm like, did they call it? Did they really say it? And (laughs) like, yeah, it was just, it was such a magical night. So much fun. Mm -hmm. And I've just, the mystery writing community is amazing. They have absolutely welcomed me with open arms. It's been great. That's so great. Love it. <laughs> and it's actually really fun to look through your social media because there is record of that night and your mm-hmm. reaction to it. It's really fun to see you looking so happy. So congratulations. <laughs> a friend interviewed me recently for a Substack, and she sent me a picture and was like, can I post this? And it is the most awful picture of me. I don't even, I didn't even know that many chins was possible. And I was like, put it up there. I'm at the podium. I'm like, yeah, put it up, put it up. Put it up here. <laughs> It is so well-deserved. It is such a beautiful book. I'm so glad that's so sweet. Absolutely. But the thing is like so many books. I know. Deserve the award. That Mm. was the thing. You know, it's not like this book is so special. It's just, I mean, there are so many books out there that are just phenomenal. And it's also really cool when a small press gets noticed like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was one of our other questions because you, Erin, several of your books were published with University of Nebraska Press, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. both of you are with Amazon imprints. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what has that experience been like? So far, honestly, it has been absolutely fabulous. They've, I'm with Lake Union and Aaron's at Thomas and Mercer, and they've been fabulous to work with. And I have to admit, you know, I had my trepidations when my agent told me, you know, she wanted to submit to them. I've worried about my relationships at indie booksellers. You know, there's their people talk about this animosity between them. And I have not found any of the things people told me to worry about to be true. People said to me, oh, you'll never get carried at Barnes and Noble. And our local Barnes and Noble has embraced us. We're doing a joint event together in September. And Joseph Beth in Cincinnati said the same thing. They're like, okay, the Amazon thing could be tough, but you know, we've come down on the side of supporting authors that we know and love. And they they actually have a very different um, business I don't even know what to call it, format, policy, way of doing things that I find really kind of exciting after being at different houses. One of the things I love is they're really transparent about sales. 
Um, sometimes your sales numbers could be treated like they were top secret at other places. And they're just like, here's the portal. You can check every day and see for yourself. And you're like, what? Interesting. you get royalty statements every month instead of only two times a year. They've been incredible to work with so far. Now, my book is not out yet, but so far it's been a fabulous experience. I've had a, a really positive experience with Thomas and Mercer with a small press the University of Nebraska Press, it was a little less editing for the manuscript. I think that they are more hands-off of that. Like I got great feedback and it was helpful, but it wasn't the overhaul that I had when I signed with Thomas and Mercer. And it's because I hadn't had that experience before. I thought, oh, they bought the book. They really like it. And then I got my editorial letter <laughs> that was like, just kept on spooling off, off the printer. I, I was like, how could there be more pages? And so it was a really different experience for me. But one of the most joyous ones I've had in publishing, I like I hadn't had that kind of attention to detail and somebody coming in being like, well, you've got this structure, but what if it looked like this? What if we tore the house down and rebuilt it? And I was like, that's a better house. But it was it was just not what I had necessarily expected. And I could not believe how much I loved that collaboration. If I can jump in and say that, I absolutely agree. It was the most rigorous editorial process I'd ever been through. And it was the first time I'd worked with sensitivity readers. It, that was really exciting. But it was just really reader after reader and lots of copy editing. That was very fun. And I love that stuff. Yeah. I, I think Aaron and I are very alike that way. Well, it's great to hear you've both had such wonderful experiences working with an Amazon imprint. I think one of the fears, at least that I've heard from readers, is that they worried initially about Amazon imprints of, of just publishing anything and putting it up there to, to make sales. And that hasn't been the case at all. And they're really committed to putting out quality literature mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. and I translated so. literature as well, um, which is great. So, um, Katrina, I have a question for you regarding your acting. And I'm wondering, you know, how does that influence your writing, if it does? Or do you have to, you know, use two different parts of your brain from acting and then to writing? Oh, that's such a good question. First of all, full disclosure, I have not been on stage since 2013. <laughs> so it's been a while. Um, but yeah, I was an acting major in college. And for a brief time, I belonged to the Actors' Equity Union, so I was very serious about it for a while. But honestly, the acting training was some of the best writing training I ever received. Character development is the same, whether you're going to perform that character or put it on the page. And one of the things that was hammered into my head in acting classes was motivation. What do you want in this scene? And that impacts how you read those lines, how you deliver those lines based on what is your goal in the scene. And I found that that idea of motivation was missing in a lot of my early creative writing classes. If the character doesn't want something, there really isn't a story. There can't be conflict unless you know what they're after. And so I feel like it really helped me. They definitely cross-pollinate. I think it's fed my writing life a lot. The only thing where they don't is if I'm in a play, like I was in 2013. The last time I appeared on stage was in a show called Criminal Hearts, which was wonderful. It was just so much fun. And I got to play just this batshit crazy lady <laughs> who carried a gun the whole show. It was so much fun. But when I'm in a play, I am not writing. There just aren't enough hours in the day. So it meant that for the you know, those weeks of rehearsal and performance, my writing kind of just sat. But they do cross-pollinate each other, I think. 
I keep stealing that word you used early on. I love it. I love it. Well, you also have a wonderful TED Talk that we'll link oh. to in the show notes. And, you know, oh, your, you. your poise on stage, obviously, you know, you're very comfortable on stage, but you also talked about, you know, empathy and writing. And I would think that acting helps you learn to be empathetic as well. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And especially like if you're playing a villain or an antagonist, you know, that person is somebody's child. Mm-hmm. Somebody likes, loves this person. They, mm-hmm. No one's ever... They, no one ever sets out to be the antagonist. They are the protagonist of their story, right? So yeah, but I think, and that's true in acting and on in writing as well, definitely. But you know what? That TED Talk was so much more terrifying than playing a role <laughs> because it's you yeah, and you're not, you know, it's like, it's you up there instead of playing a part. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the true. scariest things I've ever done, but I was really glad I did it. You did a great job. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, we know that you both have books coming out August and September. So um, we often like to ask authors at the end, what are you working on next? But that seems to be maybe a, not the best question to end with in this case. I don't know. What do you think, Emily? I mean, unless you have something you want to talk about. Sometimes we get like a major eye roll, like, really? <laughs> you want me to talk about what's next? This isn't even out yet. <laughs> so how do you feel about it? I can tackle that if you want. And then we'll see what Aaron wants to say. You know, I had a long break in publishing, but I was writing during all of that. But, you know, my last book came out in 2011. So I wrote a lot of books in the in, in that decade or more that I just couldn't find publishing homes for. And I like to share that to any other writers listening so they know it's not a guarantee and that happens to everybody. I called it a creative, a publishing drought, Right. But I, I kept writing during that time. So one of the manuscripts that I had worked on that I had then set aside, the title currently is I Forgot to Know You. I call it kind of a dementia mystery where the main character is trying to solve a mystery from her mother's childhood, but the mother now has dementia and is not a reliable source of information. And the protagonist doesn't know if this traumatic event the mother is referencing is real or imagined. So she and her adopted daughter set out to try to find out the truth. And what they find out totally changes how they view this woman as their mother and grandmother. And it's a lot about family and identity and keeping secrets. I love stories of family Mm. secrets. So that has gone through major, major revision. And Erin was one of my readers who was amazing. You have to have people you can rely on who will tell you the honest truth about things that aren't working or like sometimes really obvious things that you just didn't consider. Like, why don't they just do this? And you're like, why don't they, you know, like, why did I make this so complicated? And it's um, such a good book. It's such oh, a good so book. You're so wonderful, but she's a great reader that way. And some of our, Christina Consolino, one of our other writer friends is as well. So I just sent that to my agent and got her notes back. She really loves it. She really, really loves it. And um, so thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Christina. And um we will see where it goes from there. So she will be submitting it before too long. So fingers crossed, send a good energy out to the universe. Yeah. And thank you for for talking about that period in your publishing career, because we were going to ask you about that, but we weren't sure if you want to talk about it. Yeah, totally, totally. And I just think it's important for people to know Mm -hmm. that it doesn't mean it's over. You know, I was very lucky. I had early success. The first book I tried to sell, I sold. And then after five books, suddenly nothing was happening. So those weird droughts can happen early on. Like it can take you a long time to break in or they can happen after you've been published. You just have to persevere. 
I have a, a wonderful coffee cup with nevertheless, she persisted on it. Um, and we all know what that's from. But for me, it's like, that's the story of a writing life right there. So mm-hmm. I, nice. I like to drink from that coffee mug in the morning. <laughs> now, and it, Katrina and I talk a lot about how we've kind of had these cross careers in a way, because like so much of that uh, rejection drought came early for me. Deer Season was the fifth novel I wrote. And the first four were not like, oh, I've got an idea. I tinkered with it. I mean, I wrote, I revised, I wrote, I revised. Three of them went out on submission and they just didn't land for whatever reason, you know? And so, yeah, you just have to keep going. You, the, I always say to my students, if you can convince yourself that what you love is the writing and not the publication, you're going to be so much happier. And it's a, it's something I have to tell myself all the time. Like this is your joy is writing, not, Oh, look at the book, you know? And, but it's hard. It's very hard to remember. (laughs) Yes, indeed. As for what I'm working on now, I don't really know. I'm kind of in this phase of testing the waters. I'm writing 10,000 words here. 20,000 words there, trying to figure out what's going to take root. And I think I might have found it, but I'm, but I've, I've thought this before. I fall in love very easily. I am finding out. <laughs> well, we will anxiously sit by and wait. But yes. for now, even though we've asked this question, we want to remind listeners that Aaron's new book is Come With Me and Katrina's is Morning in This Broken World. And they are out. You want to tell the dates? Because I know there was a little play with the dates. Here, yeah, come with so me is August 22nd. Coming up soon. And then I'm releasing September 1st. It was selected as an Amazon first read. So it is out as one of those choices starting August 1st. And that okay. did, getting picked for that did push my publication date back to September. But that's well worth it. I was very excited and very honored. Yeah, that's great. Congratulations to you both. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been great to get to know you and more about your writing processes. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Delightful. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.